Hey listeners, Jay Lampard here, one of the producers of this program. Just a quick warning to parents of small children who might be listening in today. While you won't hear any foul or offensive language, at times we do deal with subject matter that might be a bit too intense for younger ears. So listener discretion is advised. St. Paul says, Death, where is your sting? Christians believe in the resurrection of the body. Christians hope in the reality of heaven. But how can this authentic Christian hope exist alongside such sadness and feelings of loss when someone we love dies? Two of the most striking words in the entire Bible are, Jesus wept. Even this eternal God, who became man, wept over the death of his dear friend Lazarus. Walk with us as we explore death and the feelings of loss by those of us left behind. I am Edward Herrera, and this is How We Grieve. This is a story about Lucy, but I can't tell you about Lucy without first telling you about Matt. I remember the first time I met them, I saw them walking down a parking lot to greet me as I had just driven a U-Haul across the country from Texas to D.C. for graduate school. I was slightly resentful for having driven all of our worldly possessions through the night, And then I met him. Matt was thin and a good foot taller than Lucy, with a curly mop on his head that gave him an extra five inches. He was sporting his usual grin and gave me the kind of hug that you might give someone you'd known your whole life, not someone you just met. I looked to a third roommate who just confusedly shrugged. This encounter sums up Matt. Matt and Lucy always had a lot of fun in their relationship. I remember coming home to my apartment one time with her on his shoulder six feet in the air as they're juggling plates and butter knives, balls, anything that they could find. And they actually met that way on a mission trip down in Mexico, juggling for the locals. One of our very first uh, things that we did together was we juggled plates. And I was a semi-good juggler and he was an excellent juggler. So all of my plates fell on the ground and he still had his going in the air, and the mission was much happier that his plates were not broken, even though mine were. <laughs> and it became known that both of us were trying to change our path and looking for the direction that God was placing us to go. So Matt was heavily discerning the priesthood, and I was discerning becoming a missionary and dropping out of school. So after this trip, we continued talking and getting to know each other. And four years later, we were engaged after much discernment. And a year later, we were preparing for our wedding. Matt and Lucy planned to get married on June the 24th, 2006. Wedding dress picked out, invitations sent, and then they got some news that would dramatically change the course of their lives. Uh, Matt had gone in for a checkup because he was having trouble taking a full breath and had been coughing a little bit. And it was just kind of a shock that this was what it was. So on June 2nd, uh, Matt was diagnosed with stage three, excuse me, stage four lung cancer. Matt and Lucy were both 23 at the time of the diagnosis, and they faced a serious decision. And it was that point that Lucy knew. That for me was the day that I knew, that I knew that I had a choice to make that was for real and that was for a life of both trial but also great joy. So 
On that day, I knew that I was supposed to marry Matt, and on June 24th, we did get married. And from two weeks before we got married, throughout the rest of our time, Matt was doing chemotherapy and surgeries and brain surgeries and radiation. At the time, he was given six months to live, and that kind of compacts everything that you would like to do with your spouse and kind of amplifies it, and everything takes on a different perspective. So everything did. Everything could either be very down or we could choose to be joyful about it. And Matt kind of led the pack in trying to be joyful about the life that we did have together. So we continued with chemotherapy through the first year. And into our marriage, six months into our marriage, we became pregnant with John Matthew. Uh, He was born in October of 2007, and it was a great, great joy because we were told we would probably never be able to have kids after some of the treatments that he endured. Matt had been given six months to live, and at this point had lived a full year and a half past that. However, the treatments started to become more and more ineffective, so they did what most couples would do and started turning to natural alternatives. Matt continued to kind of stay stable, but... If you have somebody with a terminal illness, it's always on your mind and on the back of your mind and how you live your life. And amidst that, we also had our second son, Pio. You heard right, two children. But in 2010, Matt's health began to rapidly decline. When you're living with somebody, you can't always see it up close. It was very apparent to others who would visit that his health was declining and the tumors that had spread to his brain and other parts of his body He was feeling them more and more. So um, in 2010, both our third son was born, Andrew Damien. And 10 days later, uh, Matt passed away. It was both very sudden and yet not sudden at all in that he had been living with this disease for four and a half years. So Andrew was 10 days old and we were entering into this new period that was both anticipated and yet never expected to actually happen. As Matt was passing, there was a moment when I had to say, yes, yes, Lord, this is the time that I give him over to you. There's a lot of fighting, and I know a lot of people that go through this period of death where it's like a handing over of the person and of everything that you hold on to. And when I was with Matt in those last moments, I walked back in the room and I said to him, I'm going to be okay, and so are the boys. And he said, I know. And those were his last words, and he then passed very peacefully with his family surrounding him, his mother, his brothers, brother and sisters, and myself. And it was the start of something new. We were in a new beginning. He was in a new life. And that is our story. Lucy, thank you for sharing your story. And as you spoke, I feel like I would have a hard time facing the news that you faced before your wedding day, not being angry with God, not saying, why why did it have to happen this way? 
And you and Matt instead approached it with such a level of faith and trust in God. And I was just hoping you could share a little bit more about that. At some point, whenever you are diagnosed or walking with somebody with a terminal illness, you really have nothing left except your faith to rely upon. And that was the foundation because we didn't have anything else to hope in in this world. And that, I think, is what enabled a peacefulness that surpassed all understanding in that moment of his death knowing that this is not the end, this is the fulfillment of this earthly pilgrimage. And those concepts of faith can only fully be understood in heaven, but a glimpse of them at these moments of death. Do we really believe in these things? And that is something that each of us struggled with consistently throughout his illness. In the very beginning, I was the stronger one in faith and believing in his healing and believing that the Lord would provide everything that we needed. And that flipped as he got sicker and sicker. And he was the one that continued that push of, Lucy, we trust. We trust in St. Joseph. We trust in the church and his teachings and the sacraments. And that is what I think that a spousal relationship should continue to do in the faith. When one is weak, the other one is is always strong. And it may not be apparent as it was in this regard, but maybe there is a contemplative and one of service that really just shines. And that is what's so brilliant about our faith as well. There's so di- many different dynamics that allow us to be full in our personhood. Lucy, I've had the chance to talk to a number of folks about suffering and loss, but your story is particularly unique. Uh, you were in your 20s, you just lost your husband, you had three young children. Can you share a little bit more about that? Sure. So I I find that everybody, and I find this to be part of God's beautiful design in that every person is irreplaceable in his eyes. And my experience with Matt will not be the same for anybody else in the entire world. And Very shortly after Matt passed away, I was given the book by C.S. Lewis called uh, Grief Observed, and it was from a very well-meaning person who had a great love and wanted me to enter into that grief and really not try to push it away, and I appreciated that. But as I read it, I realized that I was feeling none of the things that C.S. Lewis experienced in his experience with his own wife, and I know that this book was not meant to be shared. It was his own personal journal. But even in my own personal journal, those were not the feelings that I was experiencing. And it was a great insight for me that it looks different to everybody. For me, I had an immense peace at Matt's passing and an immense joy at his funeral, knowing that this was what he had been looking forward to for his whole life and what he was working towards and feelings of hurt or loss were all associated with what I was now missing as opposed to what is he feeling and what is he missing. And every time I felt some sort of hurt or, or um, sadness, it was always accompanied by a joy of the reality. 
And I know that that is not the same for every person. And I think that that does speak to each person's individual relationship with their spouse and uh, their own personalities that they bring with it. I've heard that sometimes when you're caring for a loved one with a terminal illness, upon their death, there's a conflicted feeling because you're sad because you've lost your loved one, but then also a bit relieved. Did you feel conflicted at all? Yes, I definitely experienced both the relief and the guilt. I thought, did I give him the proper medications at times? Did Why was I not more attentive to his needs? Why was I begrudging the things that he needed during that time? Because I was just so exhausted from this journey. Um, and then that, I think, again, is where faith comes in, is that you realize that you're not the one in control of the situation. And I do feel bad in the ways that I could have done better, and yet at the same time, he he is ultimately at peace. Lucy, I feel like you're one of the few people who, when I ask you how you're doing, you actually tell me. <laughs> so, Lucy, how are you doing? It's been eight years, and I would have thought that, oh, I've gotten everything taken care of, everything is neatly in a box, and that is not the case and that every week every month there's something new that i'm learning about myself and about what the lord has to reveal through this grieving process which i thought would be done and over by now i think that has been a great gift from the lord to kind of show how deep one is both connected and how unique this process is and how intimate he desires you to go with him. I feel like after someone dies, people show up to the funeral. They stop by the house with the flowers and the casserole. They call every once in a while. But over time, that tends to fade. After Matt's death and the months pass, did you still feel supported by your family and by your friends? Um. I think rather than feeling like not supported, I think there's a grieving of no longer being married and being around other people that you used to be very close friends with, and now you have a new position. You have a new way of navigating within your own community, which is which is difficult because you're now single and you're not married and you're not talking about these other things with your spouse. Lucy, you've told me that sometimes it's nice to just talk about Matt and to keep his legacy alive in that way. Can you share more about that and maybe practical ways that you feel supported by others? I think at the time, the things that were most helpful were things that were talking about the spouse because you want to hear all of the nice things that you that is no longer present. And you want to hear that that has lived on in other people's lives. Um, or even asking that per asking me, what did what happened whenever Matt would take you on a date? Or what were Matt's favorite foods? And just recalling some of those things were helpful in the grieving process of just saying things out loud. Um, other helpful things were just practical things for me. If somebody is not great at 
talking. Maybe they offered some other service. There was one woman that did our laundry for a whole year and she'd come and pick it up and take it and fold it. And um, she said, I am not a great cook because many people were making us meals, but she said, I, I can fold laundry. And I think just being creative with ways that you can help and being very forthcoming in that help rather than always waiting for somebody to ask for it, know that there there is a great loneliness that they are experiencing and any any way can be helpful. I think that a lot of us, in hearing that Matt had six months to live, would be surprised that you all were open to life in the way that you were, particularly to the point of having three children. Can you share a little bit more about that and your decision to be open to life in this way? And that is something that we prayed about for a good while to listen to see if there was any real things that would be in the way of me caring for a child. And ultimately, that was when we decided that no, however long Matt was present, then that would also be sufficient in the Lord's will. Obviously, every child is a significant gift uh, that the Lord could also withhold, and that was not lost on us as well. There was a time whenever before the treatment, we were asked several times about sperm banking and other alternative uh, ways of conceiving. And we knew that in our hearts that that was not right. And that if the Lord desired it, then I would be open to that and he would be as well amidst whatever trials that would bring that we knew that the Lord would provide as he has. I know that during the course of Matt's illness, one of our good friends from graduate school, Julie, came to live with you all and support you and help to care for Matt and the boys. And I was hoping that you could share a little bit more about your relationship with her and how she continued to walk with you even after Matt's death. So Julie did live with us for a year and a half after Matt's passing. And this was not the original intention of her coming. Her coming was to help with Matt's treatments and help with the kids. And it was a great gift to me and I know to her to have this time together after Matt's passing. Julie and Matt knew each other, but not to the extent that they would get to know each other through her presence in our house. And she made meals for us. She prepared his treatments. And just in a very real way was a part of our family, but also somebody who was not afraid to get into the nitty gritty of how Matt was feeling. What were his treatments doing to him? Why was he acting in this way or or that way, positively or negatively? And having walked that walk with me every single day for four months was paramount in her understanding the next year and a half of my life and the children's lives. She was somebody that I could talk to on a daily basis about Matt. And I find that those in grief that are not able to talk about that person are really yearning because that's what their life has revolved around for the past however many years, whether you're 80 or if you are 20 or whatnot, whether it's a brother or a sister or mother, you just want to talk about that person and their good attributes and the things you struggled with. And Julie was that person that allowed me to process my grief. And I find that when I am speaking with other people now that have lost a spouse, 
that is one of the first things that I will ask them is, do you have somebody to talk to that knows you intimately, that won't get tired of hearing about that person, but can also just be present? The community, mainly with Julie at that time, but also with the community around, was just always willing to listen. And that allowed a freeness to experience grief and not push it to the side which I think is also really important and that I'm continually learning as well as on the spot Julie not replacing Matt because that was not possible and not her goal and not her place but helping me to get back onto my feet into a new normal and eventually she did leave and that was also very healthy. This is How We Grieve. I'm Edward Herrera. More with Lucy's story in a bit. Stay with us. I'm Edward Herrera, and this is How We Grieve. Before the break, we were speaking with Lucy, who at the age of 23 found out her fiancé, Matt, had stage 4 lung cancer. They went on to have children, and he outlived his cancer diagnosis by four years. We now return to Lucy, who shares more about life after Matt's death. So after Matt passed away in December of 2010, I was caring for the three boys as well as Julie living with us. And about seven months later, a very close priest friend had advised that I think about remarriage. And I thought he was a little crazy because it was only seven months. And yet um, later I would know very soon that that was a prompting of the Holy Spirit. And the person that was in mind, which was also very clearly made known to me, was a very good friend of Matt's. As I was thinking through remarriage in general, I thought, how could I, how could I marry somebody that didn't know Matt and the history of that? And so I contacted this person, his name was Randy, and he was both surprised and yet I know that the Lord prompted him as well. And within a couple of weeks we were dating and six months later we were engaged. I remember when you first started dating Randy, some of our friends and I imagine some of your family reacted that it was too soon. Right, it's too soon. Yeah. So... Um, how would you respond to that? That is a great question because it was asked a lot of me. There was a lot of surprised faces as to why are you dating somebody now? I think that it is very, again, different for each person. My great, my aunt, who has been widowed for a longer period of time, struggled with this at first, of wondering why, why are you dating somebody so quickly? And having spoken to... Uh, other friends, David and Julie, another Julie who also lost their spouses early. There is something that is just very unique and not everybody receives the same response. Some people desire to remarry and are not able to and some are and are able to and I know that another couple dated and married before we did. For me, it was asking the question of do I really believe that my vows were fulfilled? And that was yes, and that they no longer exist. And the answer in my heart was yes. Now, it took a, diff a longer time for me to act like that. 
and act like I was no longer married. It's a long process once you have been married. But just acknowledging those things that you are no longer married, what else does the Lord have in store for you? And being open to that, if if indeed he does have somebody else, um, which is no easy path, by the way. That is a whole nother opportunity. As somebody said to me as I was dating Randy, they said, do you realize that you're being asked into another sacrament? And whenever they said that to me, I was a little bit caught off guard because that is really what's happening and the magnitude of what is being asked of you. It's not just somebody else to be in love with, but it's somebody to enter into a sacramental marriage with. And that is something that takes a lot of work, as any sacrament does, of service. Uh, The other person, Julie, that lost her husband right away, I also kept in touch with uh, because, again, just having somebody to talk to that understands that these are real feelings, that these are feelings uh, that are true and not to be pushed aside and to listen to. Um, She actually remarried a widower that had three kids as well, the same age, and they are very happily married. Um, So well, so. so Lucy, it, it seems like that sometimes when people don't know what to say, then they just say the wrong thing. <laughs> uh, can you share some of the unhelpful things that people said? Yeah. The unhelpful was not thinking about me as a person and what I would be feeling like in this time in the sense of you are a bad person for starting to date right now rather than thinking, while this person could be lonely, this person could be prayerful and thinking about the bigger picture, this person could be uh, taking care of her children and providing in that way for her children and not sitting back and saying, well, I'm I'm just perpetually married to Matt and it doesn't matter if, if it, in fact I should be looking into other things. And so I think just putting yourself into that person's shoes but also with the knowledge that you are not receiving the same graces that that person is receiving at that time. You may not fully understand. Um, I had some very close friends that when I said that we were dating and I knew that this was the person, um, were both not understanding and they said that very frankly and yet said, but we will support you because we know that you have your mind straight and we'll walk with you. And if something seems awry, then we'll bring it up. And I appreciated that. And I appreciated people that said, whatever we need to do to help you during this time, that will happen. That came into play with Julie, the person I'm speaking with, because she was dating somebody for a little while that became abusive. And she kept asking questions of, is this normal? Did Randy do this or that? And I said, no, that's is not normal and you should rethink about dating this person which she did she did not end up marrying that person but i think in every situation just walking with that person putting yourself in their shoes to say why would she be acting so irrationally if you think it's irrational or being aware of where they are at so tell me about that first year of marriage with randy because it all seemed to happen pretty quickly. You all were dating, and then six months later, you were engaged. And six months later, we were married. And that has to be one of the hardest years of my life, and his as well, in 
navigating both having just been married, no longer married, and now preparing for marriage again to a new person who all of the unique things that I talked about with Matt are now all new and the same for Randy. He is such a unique person and has a totally different group of gifts and talents and personality. And I cannot express what a great gift that is to me in many, many levels, but just the way in which the Lord is now allowing me to love in a completely different way was not something that I was anticipating. Now, in order to love, that that takes a lot of work and loving a new person in a new way. And so that one year of both dating and engagement, for anybody that is dating a widow or a widower, there is there are so many layers to that because that person is still processing in a way that they really don't even realize they are processing. And the the grief that comes is on many levels from both parties as they as Randy is both grieving in a real way his friend Matt and also grieving a straight lace path to dating it's not just i have three children and they're all young and it's a very unique path of dating and that he died to himself as well and during that time so this this grieving that i thought was was done once I started dating somebody else, was not done and continued to carry forward um, and perfect both of us ultimately. So now uh, Randy and I got married in July of 2012 and we've been married for six and a half years, which was a very big milestone a year ago when we had been married longer than I had been with Matt. And there are just so many, again, levels of what the Lord was trying to share with me in in both marriages. But in this one, just a sense of trust and security that I I needed to have in this new relationship that took, took a lot more work based on where we had come from. So now we have three boys, uh, John Matthew, Pio, and Andrew, and we also have two girls, Teresa and Grace, who are five and three. And as we walk this journey together, it is definitely a continued uh, patience with one another in the paths that we have come. There's been a lot of both hurt on both parts of just trying to understand this this gift and task that the Lord has asked of us. I would wish nobody to lose their spouse early on or later at any point, and yet uh, that has been gifted to me, and therefore I know that the Lord is going to use it for good throughout pain, throughout uh, trials, in figuring out new ways to love with Randy. Lucian, speaking with you and in knowing you, I feel like you've handled Matt's death with a great deal of grace. But can you share what's been most challenging about grief for you? I think just both with the people that are walking with you and with yourself to be patient and allow time to pass. And that is my one of my worst vices is that I'm not allowing time to to help me in this grief. And once you allow time as your friend rather than your enemy, then things begin to resolve and come to light and 
in their newness and in in a way that you couldn't have imagined it happening the day after his death. And though there was much joy and peace in that, then reality comes back to you and you want it to hurry up. And so at each moment, just offering that moment to the Lord is just as important as the last one and being patient for what is in store. The day after his passing, I could not have ever imagined getting remarried. And I am beyond joyful and happy and amazed at what the Lord has gifted me and uh, entrusted me with through my marriage with Randy. You shared with me before that you really think it's important to keep Matt's memory alive. In what way do you and Randy try to preserve Matt's legacy? So I think that that is a, a great question because one of the things that we do, and again, this is a great gift that Randy knew Matt, and I think that that changes the dynamic a lot because many spouses don't know that person. Um, but we bring him up in regular conversation, or if something he did in particular, uh, I will say, oh, Daddy in Heaven really loved roller hockey, and he would he was the best on skates. And that that can be all I say in that one period of time. And early on, I felt the pressure to make a big deal out of every one of Matt's celebrations, whether it was his birthday or the date of his passing, that if I didn't go to the cemetery, then I was being a bad mother and a bad spouse. And I just realized over the years that that's not true and that we bring him up very naturally whenever that is the the time. And we may do nothing on the day of his passing, but we might do something 10 days later because he really loved something about Christmas. We just brought out his stocking uh, because my oldest really wanted to make sure that was hung this year. And so I believe that that and pictures, of course, uh, are helpful. And it's a, it's a, there's a real naturalness to it. Even Teresa, who's five, who never knew Matt, it's, it calls him daddy in heaven. So there's just a naturalness within our family that there's not a, a jealousy that takes place. Everybody has kind of their space within the family. And we talk about both Matt's weaknesses and his strengths as they, they come out in the boys. And it's helpful to know, oh, daddy in heaven really struggled with this as well, um, that he's a real person and that he he had these ups and downs as well. So I, I would say in all of these things, just a naturalness rather than making a big poster of Matt once a year um, is kind of how we handle it. I also really involve his family and I'm very close to his family. We visit them at least twice a year, different, different siblings and his mom and dad. Um, still come visit us at least once a year as well. So everybody is all hands on deck and and helping the boys continue this memory as well as um, keeping him alive in our family in a very natural and appropriate way. During the grieving process, one of the things that was hard for me, I would say in whether you're beginning to date somebody or not, but just the idea of thinking of others as well. And I know that I was already in a grieving state, but really being able to look out and see how are my pictures on my walls affecting other people. Um, if I'm dating somebody, maybe that is saying something different than what I'm trying to say to them. Maybe it's saying, well, I'm really still 
still attached to Matt. And that's why I have all of our family pictures up, even our wedding pictures and this and that. And just just being sensitive to others um, as well, even though you're the one that feels entitled almost to, to feel a certain way, being aware that those kinds of gestures also affect other people. So it's been eight years since Matt's death. You and Randy have been married six and a half. What's on your heart right now? One insight that has come just this year, again, the grieving process is, I think, lifelong. And I think that that is really appropriate. Clearly, I don't grieve Matt as my husband um, anymore, but as an intimate and close friend, um, as you would a good girlfriend or anything, somebody that you are very close to. And so it is definitely a brotherly relationship. Um, And yet it is something that continues as any good friendship does. And so recently I was just struggling with where do all of these memories go? I had many, many years with Matt, both in college and then afterwards. And do these things even matter anymore? And I was listening to a homily by a priest for a funeral of an 80-year-old man. And his wife was sitting there and the priest was speaking to his wife and said, you know, Sally, that all of these things that you've endured and gone through are always your memories. And you, they do matter, though he is no longer here. And for me, that was extremely helpful because I just think even though nobody else knows it and that's what the priest said he said nobody else will share this moment that you sally shared with george only you will remember these things and for me that was first hard because i want other people to remember and yet also helpful and knowing that lots and lots of other people are also sharing this same experience of do these memories mean something so shortly after i was praying about that, the Lord just gave me an insight of, yes, Lucy, these memories do mean something, and I will keep them for you safe until you need them. And that was a great comfort to me in knowing that they are important, and yet I don't need to grasp at them and hold on to them. I can detach from them knowing that when they are needed, the Lord will grant those memories to me. (laughs) How We Grieve is hosted and written by Edward Herrera. With production help, original music, editing, and creative direction by Jay Lampard. Special thanks to our guests for sharing their stories of loss and hope. This has been a production of the Archdiocese of Baltimore. To learn more, visit our website, howwegrieve.org.